0: hey everybody welcome to tcp talks with jonathan baker and justin brodley from the cloud pod in this series we're bringing you interviews with the best and brightest leaders and heroes from the tech and cloud industry
1: Jonathan, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners uh, to start kick us off here today.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, my name is Jonathan Heiliger. I'm a general partner at Vertex Ventures US. Uh, we started Vertex US about six years ago. We're an early-stage venture capital firm that backs enterprising founders. Uh, we like to play on words there because we are B2B software investors. Um, we are all former operators and founders ourselves and have Backed uh, about 50 companies to date, uh, names like Perimeter X and Launch Darkly, VGS, very good security, Hasura, uh, in in all in the sort of dev and cloud space, and then spaces further afield like High in real estate and desktop metal and 3D metal printing as well. Prior to, to turning to the dark side of being an investor, I ran infrastructure at Facebook for about five years, which I guess uh, gives me some credibility to be on this podcast. Uh, we scaled from about 30 million to just shy of a billion users while I was there, and actually started my career in infrastructure, uh, working at the dawn of the internet, uh, literally converting the NSF net to become the internet in the in the early 90s, and went from that to becoming a founder myself. Started my first company that fortunately was acquired, uh, well, was actually acquired several times by bigger and bigger companies, but ultimately Global Crossing, uh, where I did a lot of IP networking and different things there with CTO. And went from, and at that point had fallen in love with being a behind-the-scenes engineer. And went from being an engineer to running engineering teams, and you know, kind of switched my editor from Vi to PowerPoint along the way. And uh, ended up meeting one of my now partners at Vertex, Re, uh, in '99 when he, Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen, started Loudcloud that became Opsware, and I was the first non-founding employee at, at Opsware and ran product and engineering there. And kind of in between Opsware and Facebook, did other things at a little retail company called Walmart, and a mobile device business that was one of the first, or excuse me, the first um, smartphones that uh, was a business called Danger that's now part of Microsoft, and hung out at Sequoia Capital for a few years, cleaning whiteboards, getting coffee, and helping entrepreneurs. So I've done done kind of from from scratch, I've scaled from, from scratch to hundreds of millions, and then I've done the sort of hundreds of millions to billions, and... Now we're we're back to the early stages and early bits of technology all over again.
1: That's quite the career. It, it's it's always fun to talk to people who are practitioners at one point uh, and then moved into you know, venture capital or into executive leadership. Um, you know what what called you to venture capitalism?
2: Oh, um, the cool blue suits. No, maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe not that exactly. But um, so I, I started my first company. I was nineteen. Uh, we were fortunate that um, one of the co-founders was an early Netscape employee, which just kind of pins us in, in a moment in time of when Netscape was still a small business. And we raised capital from Sequoia Capital, and a guy named Mike Moritz was our first investor. Um, and you know, at that point, our first customers were Yahoo, Netscape, and, and Playboy, actually, uh, and so non venture backed business, importantly all these other businesses were venture-backed. And as we were growing and scaling and sort of all the, the fireball issues of building infrastructure and networks and hiring people and putting engineers to work and writing code, we were quickly inundated with other startups. We were a web hosting company, a web hosting business. And so we were quickly inundated with other startups that needed our help and services and guidance. And they're like, hey, how, how did you guys solve this problem? And how did you scale? And how did you overcome that? And so I was really interested in this notion of, well, how can I help? How can I help other people learn? Um, that that sort of led me down a path of advising companies and you know trying to be helpful and uh, generally invited in by you know the CTO or the CEO to you know spend a, a day a month with them or something like that because um, I didn't have any capital to invest and in. and then from advising, well you can't make more time but you can make more money and, you know, sort of along the way was fortunate to have some successful exits and so made some money and started investing in companies, 25K at a time or 50K at a time, uh, what we now think of as an angel investor and, and being very commonplace. And, you know, ult- ultimately that sort of led me back to, to venture where, um, you know, th- there's a way of working with a small set of companies and that's how we like to practice venture at, at Vertex, which is, to be engaged investors and actually be helpful and know what's happening, not just in the company, but with the founders and their families and their ups and their downs, because these are these are tough businesses. And uh, one of the things that made me successful along the way through that sort of very twisted tale was I was very fortunate that kind of people took pity on me and, and became coaches and mentors and, and helpers along the way. And uh, many of whom I still talk to, folks like Mike Moritz, uh, and, and others. And, and then so I, I wanted to be able to um, offer that same kind of support, um, whether it was just emotional support to yell at me in the middle of the night or uh, real support of, oh, shit, our firewall's down. Like, how do we fix it? It's like, oh, there was a point in time when I could help someone do that. not Not anymore, but thank goodness. But yeah.
1: Yeah, as I as I moved up, I had that same opinion. Like, you, you I could fix it for you, but you really don't exactly. want me to, because <laughs> my knowledge is about ten years old, and it's probably changed.
2: I, one of my one of my best uh, memories from just like running operations was like literally it was a middle of the night phone call, and you know this thing that's not the actual thing, but a beeper went off. Uh, it was one of the early Blackberries, and it's like you know network down, please call us, blah blah blah. Yeah, you know, this is and and you know I don't know two three in the morning, sometime middle of the night. And they're literally like, yeah, the, you know, the edge router went down, how do we fix it? And I was like, oh, you do this, 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 this. Okay, it's back online. Great. I'm going back to bed. And like, literally, and then like the next day, I had no recollection of that. And it was like a few days later, someone, you know, they reached out to me. And they're like, yeah, thanks for saving our bacon the other night. You know, we, the, 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 I forget what city it was in, but you know, something like LA was down. It's like, oh, okay, cool. Like, you know, just did that in the middle of the night, casual.
1: No big deal. The, the world of ops. Well, you know, one of the things that intrigued us when we you know, we t- started talking about having you on the show was really around uh, service ownership and, and the direction that service ownership kind of plays, which is, kind of feeds back to your operations conversation there. Uh, you know, it's interesting because we've, we've kind of gone through these paradigm shifts in the, in the market, uh, DevOps being a big one. Uh, then SRE is kind of now the new shift in operations and infrastructure. But, you know, the service ownership piece um, is actually a barrier I'm pretty passionate about. I know Jonathan's pretty passionate about as well. You know, how do you feel about service ownership today in 2021, you know, compared to some of these other movements that have been really transformational? Where do you think service ownership is sitting in that play? Is it still there? Is it still something people should be doing? Where does it kind of relate to, uh, as you see it to infrastructure and kind of these other paradigm shifts that are happening?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to give you my thoughts. I'd love to hear what, what you guys think too. I mean, I think because I think that service ownership is one of these, like, it's a big problem that's lurking just below the surface in every engineering team. Uh, I think even the, the most well-run engineering orgs, most, the majority of them use Excel spreadsheets to track who owns what service and even what services may talk to one another. Um, you know, very few companies I think have yet to adopt microservices meshes and, and, and things like that and using, you know, routers and abstractions between, uh, different layers of an application or between micros, different microservices themselves. Um, and so the you know the notion that like of who even owns a service and how does someone discover that I think is is very broken inside of big companies, small companies, fang companies and and you know, laggard companies and because and, the problem is like think pretend you're a new engineer and and you know when when he or she joins, how do they figure out what components to use? Like what's the right version of a particular service to, to use? Um, how are they operated? Where's the documentation? Um, who do you go to to ask questions? When is the time to deprecate it, and you know maybe migrate to a new thing or a new version or something like that? Um, yeah, you know, I think often these are questions that kind of are the provenance of SRE teams or or DevOps teams, or in larger organizations. Actually, we've seen that they're owned by like even a smaller subset, like the platform engineers or the senior SREs, because there's just way too much complexity to keep in one's mind. Um, and, and I think that all of that is it spawns from just the organic nature of how so many services are developed and built and then scaled and then all of the third-party tools that we end up bringing in right it's like hey you have your your monitoring thing she has her monitoring thing you know you have another logging system and a login analytics system and and there tends to be a lot of duplication in in um, service architectures these days
0: who do you think should own the services I mean we, we have sort of product ownership product management, leading development teams who often kind of build build these artifacts and deployed by an entirely separate team whether it be DevOps or SRE anymore what do you think that should look like from from a service ownership perspective?
2: I, I guess I can describe what I've seen or what I think of as, as a high performance team and best performing team and I saw a lot of these problems firsthand at Facebook as we were scaling the infrastructure you know we started with 30-ish engineers uh, and grew to over a thousand just on the infra team and because of that you know Different teams were using multiple tools and many times competing tools. And I think in a lot of instances, that competition is good because the cream rises to the top. You get to see how tool A or approach A works versus B and C and D. Um, but how, how we ended up crafting our organization was we started with a centralized SRE team that were, you know, in many cases, the outgrowth of a sysadmin organization, that org then split into two tiers: production engineering that focused on core infrastructure, things like service catalogs and logging and common infrastructure, and and the SRE team that um, embedded themselves within each functional area. So, for example, we used to have, you know, a, um, like an operations team that would operate the database tier and database services, and an engineering team that would build and code and deal with bugs on that same database engineering system. And instead it was just a simple like organizational change, but it had massive impact, which was to put those two teams together and make one manager responsible both for performance engineering, uh, essentially like all of the own, um, all of the product features of databases as a service to every other internal customer in the business. So whether, you know, he in this case it was a it was a guy, uh, you know, whatever he decided in terms of building features and trading off new feature development versus performance versus um, delinting linting and, and, and you know, sort of removing engineering debt, like he had full ball control because ultimately he was responsible for delivering this product database as a service to all of his internal customers. And over time, we, we extended that logic to product teams. So in order to get product teams to think about performance as a feature, first you have to define the metric and then you you want to make them responsible for it. So the photos team initially didn't have performance as a metric, and you know they would do different things and make photos and you know fun and interesting and bigger and smaller and with rounded corners and square corners and all things that impacted performance, because they didn't own the performance metric. They're like, oh, that's someone else's problem. They'll deal with it. And so the organizational tra- change of bringing together dev and ops into one te- truly into one team and making that decision at each kind of functional product had a tremendous impact to, you know, in the case of Facebook, sort of going from move fast and breaking things to move fast with stable infra. It's
0: interesting. My experience of of, um, sort of service ownership is is coming into an organization which is uh, old, been around for a long time, 20 plus years. Which has been sort of more traditionally run in terms of separate infrastructure and IT teams, separate dev teams, and, and an arc, and some uh, some engineers, and and sort of coming into to do a cloud cloud transformation five or so years ago. Um, we are staffed very asymmetrically. You know, there, there may be 1,200 engineers working on the core product of the company, and then 10 engineers working on Intel services or platform services and things like that. So how do yeah. you how do you um, you know, if if you want to offer database as a service or or anything as a service, how do you sort of ensure that those those things can scale?
2: Yeah, that's a that's <laughs> a great question, Jonathan. Um, I mean, so I think like well, I, I, part of that is separating out like what are the KPIs or key criteria of each of these services, and you know, first and foremost, I think defining service ownership is is like step job number one, right? And defining that. Database is a service, and what is the you know what are the SLAs and SLOs of that service? What what you know availability guarantee, what performance guarantee? What what are the objectives of that of that service? Just as you might um, have a you know a, a, a like in finance, like a settlement function that's part of an application, or you know an e-commerce a shopping cart service, right? Like that shopping cart has a whole series of dependencies on other bits of code, both application code and infrastructure code. And you know, it's very easy to focus on is the shopping cart available or not? But like you just described, if you have 1200 engineers working on applications and features and 10 working on infrastructure, um, that, that infrastructure team is gonna be mighty overwhelmed. And I, I would argue then for just kind of the scenario I just described at, at, that we went through at Facebook, this was circa 2010 when we brought these teams together, is instead of having separate teams like a mobile team, a front end team, a shopping cart team and an infra team is to bring them together and that way you're really starting off from the point of view that each team has cradle to grave responsibility for all of for the services that they can own and then they can more cleanly define interfaces to their peer services whether that's database security uh, maybe a login you know user database or something like that. if we're talking about an e-commerce application, we'll continue using that example. Um, they can define clean interfaces between them and abstractions between them and describe in that interface what they expect from the other application in terms of response time and uptime and all of those all those criteria because I think without that, you, it sort of turtles all the way down. It's you know there's downtime, there's lost business, there's lost trust, there's distrust between internal organizations. There's fighting about, you know, the shopping cart team is like, hey, you know, this database service isn't being responsive to me. I'm going to build my own database. And then all of a sudden you have 16 different databases in use inside the company. And that means 16 times the expertise needed to make them work and scale and operate and less likely that you're actually going to get, um, you know, knowledge sharing and knowledge transfer across those teams. Do you think
0: this is something that that only large organizations can do. I mean do you do you need some some type of scale you know in the hundreds or more of employees to implement this type of model or do you think smaller organizations can also make this work?
2: Great great question. So we we actually last year my colleagues and I interviewed dozens of practitioners sort of, you know gathering market feedback on this exact topic both from you know kind of small mid-sized businesses startups um, businesses that were mid-sized and been around for a while up up to you know, financial services giants, web monsters on the internet, th- those types of things. And um, of the dozens of companies we had we, we spoke to, for the first observation was that only two hadn't yet started their journey from breaking down a monolithic application to microservices. And the second was that the number that kept coming up was once the company reaches about 30 developers, that's when decentralizing control and changing your organization structure really has kind of initial impact. So I don't think you need 200 developers or 500 developers or 10,000 developers. It makes an impact at 30. Uh, it might even make an impact a little lower than that, but that's where, you know, from our interviews, that's, that's, that seemed to be the, um, the efficient frontier of making a big impact.
0: That's a surprisingly low number. I was expecting you to, to come back with a, a much larger number than that. Um, I, I interview a lot of um, potential candidates for the company I'm currently working for. And so we, we get a lot of people from uh, you know, people who've been been to Facebook, been to Google. They want to they want to slow down their, the, the pace of their career maybe for for a short while. And so we often get into conversations about uh, SRE as as a principle and and, and the way that the fan companies work. Um, and it, it seems like at scale it, it would be perhaps much easier for smaller companies. I think we sort of struggle with. Very small teams with, which don't share knowledge very well, and so you know those those three people are very very sort of very focused or, or very aware of the very small piece of the product they're working on and I think sRE almost almost requires you to to be a bit more broad with your with your experience and and to move around and get experience in different parts of the business so that you you have the context um, to be a good engineer and I think if I look back at my own career I think that the reason I've been as successful as I have is because i I get into other people's business a little bit. i I like understanding um, other parts of the business, other business units, other other pieces of software, other other services so that i I get this big picture and can see how it all fits together.
2: for sure. and I think that's there are some engineers that are great at having that horizontal view and and kind of systems view of an entire sort of running complicated machine. and I think that's those are people who naturally gravitate towards SRE and and then kind of building up that capability in those roles. But I don't think that that's a scalable solution because I don't think we actually have the ability to produce enough people like that with that kind of institutional level of knowledge. And so we need systems to 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 help us bridge from, you know, the world of, you know, call it paper-based and in-memory up to, you know, scaling to tens and then hundreds of microservices. And I mean, it's that sort of pain point, sort of tracking all of the all of the info about apps and their their services and their dependencies and their ownership and their versions. That you know that 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 I think is this big problem lurking below the surface, and a little bit of a of a plug, but it's that's the exact pain point uh, we saw last year, and we ended up leading uh, a seed investment in a company called Ops Level, started by two former uh, PagerDuty engineers around this exact topic of being able to build a service re- service registry and, and repository for service ownership at maybe not day zero, since most people aren't willing to make that investment, but they're willing to make it at day one or day two.
1: Yeah, it's interesting as, you know, first of all, you just explained why we can't hire more Jonathans. Uh, but number two, you know, the, the big thing, you know, I think we're kind of dancing around a little bit as is really this concept of. You know, SRE versus uh, the what I call the Amazon model, right? So if you look at Amazon's model, it's very two pizza box team. It's all very heavily service owned. You know, you have loose contracts between services, and you're thinking more about SDKs for integrations. And then you go to the Google model, and you you got a much more Everyone is very consistent. Everyone is very structured in how we go. When they do an acquisition, the first year the company goes dark as they go and re-engineer their entire application to be the Google way. Uh, And then that allows them to have this kind of very centralized SRE team that can at least take these services on and kind of go through the service uh, SRE lifecycle as they want to go through that process. you know, it's it's interesting, and, and those are two very different ways of approaching yeah. the world. <laughs> you know, and from your perspective, you know, you're sound, you sound like you are describing very much the Google kind of model, and that seems to make sense for the Facebooks of the world. But you are also saying the Amazon model makes sense for the smaller companies too, which is what I am hearing here. And so, Kai, what's your take on that?
2: I would say that both models work and can scale, but that increasingly and especially today in twenty twenty one, the idea of having a centralized team at scale. You know that that has kind of service ownership, ser- service control, seems way more challenging to get consistent results and and kind of high performance from than the call it the Amazon model where it, it more of that is pushed to the edge, right? And and I think it's important mm-hmm. to think about when Google started SRE and they they really deserve the credit for for bringing the blending together software developers and operations people in the early two thousands. You know that was a very different era. Uh, the number of developers, the number of services, everything. Right? It was, it was 22, 21, 22 years ago, plus or minus a year or two, uh, when when, um, when when they started that model. Um, and so I think that for businesses, maybe let me put it, phrase it this way, which is, I think for businesses for whom they are digital natives, tech is core to their business, Facebook, Netflix, Google, et cetera. And those are just big names, but it, it, it could be a, a you know a smaller SaaS company as well. Salesforce, a little bit smaller, still not small. Um, th- at that point, having um, application owners also own the infrastructure, the service nomenclature, service catalog, all, all of that, and essentially the, the Amazon two pizza model, like let's distribute this this knowledge and this control to the edge. I think makes a ton of sense. On the other hand, mm-hmm. if you're not a digitally native business, you're a manufacturer or a retailer or something like that, and the and technology and or digital is part of your business, but it is not the main thing, at that point, I think maybe um, the idea of central teams makes more sense uh, because you have sort of different things going on in your business rather than it being the main thing. What do you think?
1: I sort of agree with you. I, th- I think it's really a question of, this digital native transformation and and you know the cloud transformation really at the end of the day for a lot of these companies, um, you know, there's also people who would argue very heavily that you know if you're in manufacturing and you're not trying to become a cloud native, that you're also missing the boat. <laughs> very true. So there's <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's hard. Uh, it's so, hard, to,
2: it's hard to manufacture atoms out of bits, right? Like that's a, that's a hard transformation exactly. to make. People spent a lot of years in, in trying to make it work in physics, and we're not quite there yet.
1: Uh, yeah, it's definitely been interesting to see kind of the paradigm shifts that have happened. You know, and you talked a little bit about monolithic to microservices and. You know, there, you also mentioned service mesh, and so you know, kind of get my soapbox a little bit. It's, there's a lot of complexity there. <laughs> there's a lot of complexity and in, in infrastructure on top of Kubernetes, on top of microservices, on top of service mesh, service catalog, and you know, being able to do uh, automatic configuration management. And it, it works, uh, but it does take a larger team of service owners to do that and to make sure that hey, my my configuration as a service works well, my logging as a service works well, and it. it in some ways it puts a lot of pressure on the dev team to meet these standards and get in the way of developing but it also you know it, it kind of means that you can't get those people who know how to fix these problems and there is a point where i feel like a lot of solutions i see today are very heavily driven by these new technologies and the desire to build my resume with really cool things like Kafka and Kubernetes versus actually just getting the solution that's going to work and meet the business need and and solve the business challenge. And so I, I sometimes worry about that complexity and how that complexity is impacting the business and the the unaware cost that most CTOs and CFOs are taking when they say, oh yeah, we're going to go to Kubernetes when all I really need to do is be able to move you know widget A to widget B. <laughs> to-
2: totally agree with you. I mean, I, I, I think that there's a lot of we are, we have been in a decade-long transition of the disaggregation of the tech stack. and you know in, in some senses, we're moving back towards aggregating or central centralizing the tech stack once again, whether that you, whether you could say that the cloud providers are doing that, like Amazon, Google, Azure in the US at least, and then providing higher and the higher level services themselves. So you know I can now get functions as a service and data storage as a service and processing as a service. And then I as an engineer don't need to necessarily build those things and choose Kafka for queuing or uh, you know some other you know sort of management tool or, or framework, but I could just subscribe to them. But then, then that brings it brings with it a whole other set of trade-offs in, in terms of vendor lock-in and, and skills needed to you, to your point. But it also reduces the choice, right? Of okay, I don't have the paradox of choice if I can use any piece of open source software and 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 any module and then you know, I hire Sarah, and she's a Kubernetes person. And then after Sarah, I hire Kevin, and he's not a Kubernetes person. And now I have to arbitrate between these two humans about how they are manipulating you know the bits and the software and the and the code. So, so no doubt it, it can get very dirty very quickly and 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 kind of spiral out of control. I mean, I think that a lot of CTOs and and in some cases CIOs or heads of engineering, maybe more relevantly here. Um, are are faced with the sort of ever-present tension of new people when they come into an organization want to bring their stamp on things whether that's a new programming language or a new piece of tech stack um and balancing that with kind of keeping the machine running and and humming and getting more efficient not less efficient as we add you know, as we bring more people in and in some respects i think that's what's that's one it's a small factor but i think it's one of the small factors that's given the no-code, low-code frameworks um, like Heroku from a long time ago, but you know, uh, a lot. There's a lot of more, much more recent examples here um, that move out of PaaS to actually like giving business users development capabilities so that they don't need to talk to IT or, or even scope an engineering project. They can click and put things together like Lego bricks uh, using you know Trade.io or something like that um, for for you know for their needs. And ultimately, that, that those might turn into full-fledged applications that run on these hosted platforms and environments, and don't need Kubernetes and Service Queues and memory management and databases and storage and more and more. Uh, but they're they're run by um, they're, they're run
1: by higher-level services. You mentioned vendor lock-in, which we we love to talk about here at the show all the time. Yeah, uh, you know, what's your? Uh, you know, I, I think I guess what your take is, but what? What? How do you feel about vendor lock-in in this particular case? Uh, you know, it's a cloud provider or Heroku you just mentioned. You know, those are big commitments, uh, typically for engineering organizations.
2: I think vendor lock-in is an interesting thing, where I was taught early on in my career that you always have two vendors as a solution for the same thing, so that you can play them off each other or balance them out or switch one. You know, s- switch one back and forth. And there's there's definitely, I think, moments in time, almost anytime there's a new piece of technology or a new approach. Think about when I started working, it was ATM and Frame Relay. And then, you know, the support for IP networking was different between Cisco and Bay Networks and and different routing vendors. Um, When Meraki, uh, you know, in 2012 was sort of a budding Wi-Fi company, Meraki versus Ruckus, they supported different protocols. Like they couldn't interoperate. Uh, you know, at 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 sort of a deep level, and they each had their edge. That's the, those same unique features exist in the cloud, right? A- Amazon has a bevy of services from, uh, you know, from Lambda to S3 to to other types of things, and and now I think in, and the same with Google and, and 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 Azure. But I think now we have sort of vendor lock in, partially from a brand perspective, and interfaces become de facto where. New startups, new entrants are saying, "Use my thing, it's better and here's the eight reasons it's better but oh by the way it's interface compatible with s three or I'm interface compatible with Mongo Atlas because they're the de facto standard, and in many cases it's because that can work because those interfaces are part of the open source either community in the case, or or yeah they're they're in the open source community um, because of like how Mongo grew up and and so therefore Like they can't have corporate control over that interface and and really enforce vendor lock-in. Another example of, you know, I think kind of how how you can sort of work with vendors. We did this thing at Facebook um, called the Open Compute Project, which was really about designing data centers to be optimized for the servers within them, and the servers within them optimized for the applications. But that started when. We were buying hundreds of millions of dollars of servers from Dell and HP and brands like that, and and we said to them, hey guys, you know it's got to be better, cheaper, faster, right? You know what what else is new? And Dell said, no, we can't do it. You know this is this is the least we could take. So we said, oh well, let's let's redesign the server then. And they, Dell actually stood up a business. It's called DCS Data Center Services. They stood up a business to redesign servers for people. And we you know and they they did their thing, and we, we bought a lot of their product. And we worked co- collaboratively. But ultimately there came a point where we're like, we want to go one step further. We want to do something that's different, that's cheaper, that's better for us. And it may not make sense for the rest of your business. And that meant taking on, you know, we had to build a new engineering function, we had to build a supply chain function, like we had to create all of these teams. What it meant for us as a business was we were able to build servers that were something like 30% more efficient on a power per watt basis and 20% more efficient on a cost per watt basis than anything else on the market. But that was for us, and until we open sourced it to the rest of the world, and then we shared our designs and our ideas, and other people made those ideas better, and took them and made them their own. And so I think that, you know, part of the I think the biggest way to manage vendor lock-in is is through open source and through open communities. But I've got one more anecdote to share about vendor lock-in, which is the unintentional vendor lock-in. Um, there's a, a, a you know a very large uh, text-based chat system that we all use and love today that grew up in the age of of AWS. And there came a point in time when AWS was working great for them and they're, they're great partners, um, but they needed presence somewhere else in the world that AWS didn't have presence with the right latency envelope. So they went to another cloud provider and stood up their service and everything was going well until they started increasing load. And what they discovered, and I love this because because we're talking about TCP today, is that the way GCP had configured the connection pools and connection buffers on their servers was different than how AWS had configured it. And so this company who was like, hey, we're totally vendor agnostic and independent, we could switch from AWS to anyone else, was unwittingly locked into AWS because their whole service was built on the premise of how many simultaneous connections can an AWS instance handle for our service?
1: That's, that's a great story. <laughs> it's one of those things you don't ever think about, and it, it does burn you. Uh, you know, I, I when people talk to me, to me about lock-in, I, the one I say is, "Well, did you choose Java or did you choose .NET uh, for your application stack?" Like, that's a that's a form of lock-in too. <laughs> and I, I don't think people realize that they're making these lock-in decisions almost every day.
2: Absolutely, yeah. If you choose an unpopular programming language, or you happen to stay on a programming language too long. Let's say you're you're still using COBOL in your production infrastructure. It's pretty hard to hire developers to who want to work on that code.
1: Yeah, for sure, and and it also hurts you long term too. If you end up on a legacy code base that you can't, you know, you can't migrate out of quickly, or there's not a good alternative to it, can cause you a lot of pain uh, and investment challenges yeah. in the future. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I came from a networking background, you know, way, way long time ago when I was doing hardcore infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, I, I remember the first time I heard about Facebook uh, and building their own load balancers. And I was like, why would they do that? It's so crazy. You know, there's F5 and there's these other amazing solutions. And then you you really start thinking about the scale of where Facebook had to be at that time to say, look, you know, we don't need all these fancy features of F5. We need something that just load balances." <laughs> and load balances the way that Facebook needs us to do it. And that's a whole different level of scale that most companies never really achieve. And I, I think... You know, a lot of companies want to come out and start up and say, hey, we're the next Facebook of X. And so we need to do all of that investment, too. We need to have our own load balancer. And And it's like, no, no, no. There was a point where I'm sure, you know, Facebook was buying... Commodity load (laughs) balancers, and and there was a point where they said that's no longer going to work for them. You are not at that scale, and most startups make the mistake of thinking they're at a much larger scale than they are, and and it's all tied typically to this lock-in fear, and and that's the thing is like you know not choosing serverless, not choosing a a a GCP service, not choosing these things because of that fear or because you know someday you're going to be massive is I think this huge crutch that kills us in the industry over and over again.
2: Yeah, I guess I agree and I disagree. Um, the, the part I agree with there is don't don't overly engine don't make a simple problem complicated if you don't have to, for sure. Right. Totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think when Facebook started, you know, Mark, Dustin, and a few other engineers used the you know, the code and the and the kind of most popular open source projects that were available to them at the time, which was mostly PHP and my and MySQL as the back end. And uh, it was that two-tier that two-tier application structure got them to a couple of million users um, before um, they well they they had also hired a, a phenomenal engineer uh, a gentleman named Jeff Rothschild who uh, made a seminal decision for Facebook which was to insert Memcached uh, in an in-memory cache layer between PHP and 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 MySQL and to be honest that three-tier simple architecture. Stuck with the company until hundreds of millions of users, and what what has now become hundreds of microservices and independent things that sit on the side of you know the main Facebook app, and and so the reason that I disagree, I guess that's never mind. That's part of me agreeing that 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 uh, keeping things simple rather than making them complicated is 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 better. You know today. Facebook is is very different, of course, um, and, and when we were a billion users, we were very different. I think the important tenet that got set early in the company culture, just to talk about people again for a second, is we made the decision very early on, it was, it was actually Jeff's decision, that we should never have commercial software between ourselves and our users. And his logic was was simple and sound. Uh, once again, simple, simple is best. His logic was simply... If I have to depend on a vendor to fix a bug in the middle of the night, that I have to call them, I have to influence them, I have to yell at them, I can stand on my head, all of those types of things. But at the end of the day, the vendor is making a decision to prioritize me against all of their other customers. Whereas if I have the code, it's in my repository, I control it, and I have the expertise, my people have 100% incentive and alignment to fix the bug, fix the problem, and make it right right away.
0: I like that ideal, that's, that's a great ideal, that's something which I think people tend to avoid, especially in older enterprises, because they want somebody, they want somebody else to be on the hook if there's a problem. And so we, you know, we only buy Cisco, we only, we only buy enterprise software from this company or this company because there's somebody to call if there's a problem. It's, um, it's an interesting um, disparity between what really is best for you and your customers and the choices that people make, <laughs> it's kind of strange.
2: I, I agree. I agree with you, Jonathan. And and I think the that it worked. It worked because Facebook was digitally native company and of the people and the caliber of people we were able to hire early in the early days of the, the company. Um, I think that would be really tough to take a, I don't know, let, let's pick a business that's just, you know, not digitally native. Take, if McDonald's is reinventing their entire IT systems, you know, that, that run that, you know, fortune 50 company, and they said, we're not going to have any commercial software in between us and our customers. And they, I think that'd be really hard for them to do, um, especially because they're already operating at an incredible scale versus a startup who's starting today can, can make that decision. But when you make a decision like that, and if, you, and if you sort of codify that in stone, then you're choosing to live by, live by that for the rest of your existence, and, you know, unless you want to break, break the tablets and, and change things again you know, just as Jonathan, excuse me, just as Justin was talking earlier about load balancers and, you know, building our own, we were at definitely at a certain scale to do that. But, you know, we had commercial load balancers in between us and users. And for a while that worked. And it, you know, it it worked until we wanted specific things out of our edge that other people didn't. And we weren't the first people to do that. Google had built their own edge. Microsoft had built their own edge, Amazon, Netflix, et cetera. Um, you know, and and then that becomes an engineering trade-off of: do we put engineering dollars behind infrastructure that could make the site faster, more reliable, um, and ultimately support different kinds of product features in the future, maybe streaming, maybe uh, advertising, or do we take those engineering resources and put them directly into product features now?
0: So I often hear people talk about how businesses should focus on you know their core competencies. You know, if if your business is you know, selling loans for example then, then you should put your resources into the the very specific business logic of selling loans and and not invest in things like building your own load balancers or running your own services. And I think this has been the uh, the beauty of the public cloud and the growth of managed services is that all of a sudden dev teams can be can be uh experts in in what they need to for the for the core business, but they don't need to be experts in mySqL or uh, or Redis or, you know, pick, pick any managed service of, of 200 that, that Amazon or GCP or Azure have, have to offer now.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that, that you know, by and large, that makes engineering teams more productive. They can build more features. They can build more business value rather than, you know, doing the things that, that might be like cleaning out the pipes, so to speak.
0: Infrastructure as code has been part of what oh, I've been sort of teaching for five or six years at least. And so eventually I think I, I'd like to almost see, the, the word infrastructure team go away in businesses. I, I, I don't think it has a place anymore, especially especially for companies who can use public cloud. I think we start thinking about these managed components as really just part of the application stack, and I, I don't think we will need dedicated infrastructure people at that point.
2: I, I, would, I, I, I could see that vision in the future, um, kind of like I can see, you know, crypto kitties flying around in the future. But, I mean, I just, I just pulled up aws.amazon.com, right? There's hundreds of services, There's and there's, there's a market, and those are, excuse me, there's hundreds of products that Amazon provides. And then there's a marketplace on top of that for third-party services, and Cloudflare has a very similar marketplace and a very similar model. Many of these services are managed and they're available to people, but many of them are also just very basic. I'm not trashing them. They're just basic. And, you know, a, a business may come along, you know, hey, I'm going from being a retailer to being online, and... And you know I love the you know uh, Amazon Lex feature. It's you know voice and text chatbots, cool. But it doesn't do all the things I want. Oh well, I want to integrate this third-party tool. Maybe I, I use Customer um, for my voice and, and uh, voice and text chatbots. Well, that takes an infrastructure engineer to stitch those things together and 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 actually make them work and scale. Would be would be my hypothesis. So I guess you could say I'm not a fan of no ops. At least not yet. Yeah, not, not either. Quite, not yet. <laughs> no. not quite yet. How do you feel about um?
0: You know, speaking about cloud and cloud services, how how do you feel about um? What AWS especially has has been um, has been seen to do in terms of taking, you know, Elasticsearch and uh, MongoDB and and other open source uh, technologies and monetizing them in the way they have.
2: Honestly, I've only followed the those conversations from a distance my 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 read on it is that AWS is and and other clouds they're doing the natural things that make sense for them and their customers which is to offer higher and higher level services that better meet the needs of their customers and the fact that you know they're able to take open source and, and use that as a starting point and, and stand on the shoulders of, of everyone else is is an advantage that accrues to them and not to Mongo and Elastic and folks like that because you know they, they they may be the prognosticators, but that's no different than um, how uh, well. So that, that's no different than how Co- Confluent started, where the team at LinkedIn created Kafka, open sourced it, and then some of those some of the people on that team were um, some of the people on that team were responsible for founding Confluent, a commercial business, you know, based on. Technology that was created at LinkedIn by by someone else or you know by themselves, but under a different era.
0: As a as a sort of representative of, of VC, w- would you um, would you advise a, a startup? The the open source uh, startup model was was viable anymore. I mean, it seems it seems like there's been some huge back, backwards steps in terms of licensing changes and things. Do you, do you think it's is it possible to be successful using the open open source or a sort of freemium model? Or do you think it's something that people should avoid anymore?
2: Well, I would separate the two because I think open source is different than freemium. O- open source is a one-way door, um, right? Once once you put something out in, in open source, and I think it depends a little bit on the specific license model that's chosen, you generally can't take it back. Um, whereas freemium, you know, Dropbox has a freemium offering. Um, I can give my service away for free, uh, and and I can change what elements exist in that free tier versus the paid tier. Um, at, at any point in time, right, and that's sort of my decision as a as a company. I think one of the best things about open source is that you can get other people's ideas and input to your code, to the architecture, etc. And you can truly get engineering leverage from having more more eyeballs, more contributors, etc. Um, but in terms of business models, it's definitely made it trickier for businesses that are based around open source or open core. And I mean, I think one that is worth studying that's becoming a juggernaut in the industry is HashiCorp because they have seven, eight uh, different open source projects that all kind of relate to each other. And they built a phenomenal commercial business around those open source projects without devaluing the open source projects by their very nature.
0: I actually reached out to them to, to ask them what their, their, their plans for the future were given given the steps that Elastic and, had made. And um, they, they're committed to their Mozilla license and they say yep. they have no intention of, of going back on that, which is which is awesome.
2: Yep. Yep. I'm just looking at their 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 website now. So yeah, they have, I guess, yeah, eight different applications. Um, and they have now announced the HashiCorp Cloud platform. That's that's what I wanted to see if was was public because I lost track of it. I'd known about it for, for some time. You know, and the idea being here that, you know, it's not just about running Hashi's Hashi services on the public cloud, but Hashi actually running their services running console running terraform running vault on behalf of their customers because their customers don't want to manage the infrastructure and so they want to consume these best of breed tools in a in a service like function without needing the expertise behind them
1: yeah I, I think the key thing is amazon and these partnerships you know with these companies to become more more integrated so i think it's the you know, yes, you can, it's great that you have this uh, cloud service, but now I have a third-party processor I have to declare on my GDPR. I've got, you know, risks of you having my data that maybe I don't necessarily want to have out there. And so it was really, to my mind, it's, it's how does Amazon and, and Google and Azure really partner better with these companies to offer those, their cloud services, but in a native way that gives me the confidence and protection of the hyperscaler um, at the end of the day. And I think that's, I, I do wish Amazon was doing a slightly better job on the partner side. They're, they're starting to seem to hear the message from the market that you know, yes, we want this, but that doesn't mean we want you to run it. <laughs> and they're doing some more partnerships with like Prometheus and, and Grafana and some of the others. But uh, yeah, it's definitely, I think it's an interesting transition here over the next few years. I think it, we're still early days of some of this this angst that I would say exists in the cloud space right now around this totally. topic. And
2: I think that that's part and parcel for the. I think I called it concentration, but I really meant bundling and unbundling of. Of you know, technology services over the last ten years.
1: Well, you mentioned a couple of your fantastic portfolio companies, including you know, LaunchDarkly, as well as OpsLevel. Uh, any others that you would you know, recommend? Some of our cloud listeners take a look at and, and think about for their solutions uh, before we wrap up here. Wow, if you're going to give me that kind of free time to just wax poetic about DevTools, then uh, for, for sure. Well, I mean, I also, but well, maybe maybe pick your top two. I can't give you all, I, <laughs> but there's no I, favorites, right? In I, the VC I not promote
2: <laughs> all of them. Dang it. Um, well, yeah. So, you know, I talked a little bit about LaunchDarkly. It's you know feature feature management and allows companies to ship software with with more confidence, uh, simply because you can ship code without turning it on and control who gets it when they get it, etc. You know, I think that it's a company that's doing well. LaunchDarkly is doing very well, and as a result of um, many businesses deciding to shift their you know development processes and, and styles over to this this method of uh, um, of, of coding, if you will. Um, talked a little bit about ops level, you know, service catalogs and service ownership, especially important in, in microservices environments. Um, maybe a, a third company to mention is, is more directly dev-related is, is Gitpod, where we're investors with general catalyst. Um, Gitpod is, is really allows developers to quickly and easily spin up new dev environments and, and to automate that process. Um, you know, That could be on a task-by-task task basis or, or on a project-by-project project basis. And you know, really start with sort of fresh builds every time, and, and not not have to you know sort of fight and and fight for resources and things like that. Um, but you know, we also talked about uh, HashiCorp, which is not an investment of ours. It's just a business we admire greatly. Um, you know, businesses like Grafana that you mentioned, GitLab, and others I think are doing some tremendous things to make development easier and more accessible to 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 people.
1: Well, uh, you know, we appreciate you coming and, and sharing your insights, and uh, it's been fantastic. Jonathan, uh, anything you want to add before we wrap up? No, that's it. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having yeah. me. Look forward to having you on maybe again in the future, maybe on the main show and, and talk about some, some Google Cloud announcements or some other announcements in the space. <laughs> Love
2: sounds to have fun. You again. I heard clouds in space. That sounds amazing.
1: Yep. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, that is one of the things that Amazon and, and Azure seem to be in a race to do. So it's, it's coming, clouds in space soon. Well, thanks a lot. Appreciate it.